This is Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount talking about sexuality in the kingdom of God. This is what he says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. So, as I grew up, my first exposure to pornography happened at around the age of eight. I went to a local swimming center and went into the bathrooms and someone had displayed a pornographic magazine there, ripped out a poster and put it down. And I remember walking in and seeing this, this picture of this naked woman and just thinking to myself, now, what do we have here? Now, this is, this is quite extraordinary. I had never seen a naked woman before. I had always wondered what was under the clothes, perhaps, looked at the female form, but I'd never seen anybody naked. And I remember this feeling coming over my body, just like a warmth, a, a sexual awakening or an awareness of human sexuality that struck me. So I did what I think any eight-year-old would do. I took that picture and I took it home. And I folded it up and my parents had this child's encyclopedia of the Bible. And I thought, no one will find it in there. So I <laughs> took this pornographic image and I folded it up from a magazine and put it inside that. I don't know whatever happened to that book. The second time I ever saw pornography, it was in high school, I was over a, a friend of mine's house and he said, hey, uh, come in here, I want to show you something my dad has. Walked into his bedroom and uh, he pulled out uh, it was Playboy and Penthouse. And he said, have you ever seen anything like this? And I was like, uh, no, not really. And he said, have a look at this stuff. And I remember just taking a look at a few pictures and again, that feeling, that sense of awakening. This time I'm older, I'm in high school. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is, there's something here. Last exposure to pornography was when Pamela Anderson did Playboy. And a friend of mine was like, hey, have you seen Pamela Anderson in Playboy? And I was like, I have not. He's like, do you want to see Pamela Anderson in Playboy? And I was like, he's like, here she is. <laughs> and I remember looking at it and again and just being shocked at someone who was on TV that you had some level of familiarity with, but seeing that person naked, it just produced this bizarre sense of, like, like, intimacy or understanding or awareness or vis uh, visibility. And that was all the pornography I encountered growing up in my entire life. That is it, the total summation of my exposure to pornography as a young man. Now, consider what the typical person growing up today is encountering. In the New York Times, there was an article that just burned through my world amongst parents, and it was called, What Teenagers Are Learning From Online Pornography? And there's a course that's being held for high school students by an organization after school with the title, The Truth About Pornography, a pornography literacy curriculum for high school students designed to reduce sexual and dating violence. And the author quotes, for around two hours each week, for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, take part in porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex relationships, and body images are portrayed or in the case of consent, not portrayed in porn. 
Porn literacy, how to be a more savvier consumer of pornography. Taught in high schools with a vision of helping teens understand how to view porn in a safe and sane way. Me growing up, three magazines didn't even look all the way through them, as opposed to a porn literacy class to become a savvier consumer of pornography. Of all the revolutions that happened in the 20th century, many people agree that the sexual revolution was the most successful of all of those revolutions. If the goal of a revolution is to overthrow those who are in power and replace it with another, another government, it seems that this could be true. Mary Epstein, in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, says this, the sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes as long as those involved are consenting adults. Now, at the same time the sexual revolution was gaining traction, the Jesus revolution was gaining traction, the Jesus movement and the sexual movement. But if we look at the effects today, the Jesus movement on the cover of Time magazine, I think it's safe to say in some sense it feels like, at least for that generation, the sexual revolution beat the Jesus revolution. And if we were to look at the lives of most Christians today, though not identical, way higher than I think Christ himself would be comfortable or affirm, we have very, very similar rates of porn use, premarital sex, and divorce amongst followers of Jesus. But the thing about this, these are not just statistics, these represent people's stories. Sex is eating followers of Jesus alive. It's destroying hearts. It's producing profound shame. It is changing the way communities date. It is changing the way people understand gender. It's producing a staggering amount of confusion. There is so much power in human sexuality. Knowing that it's a gift from God and that God designed it to play a very, very particular role, when you see sexual sin then as a variation from God's power, we see that it does seem to have, of all of the other sins out there, a disproportionate formative power in who we are. And this is why most of the scriptures, when they address sex or sexual immorality, carry such strong language. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I won't be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And that's a fascinating phrase. Do, not know that, do you not know that your body is a temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who you receive from God? You are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This phrase here, I had a seminary professor who talked about the use of this phrase here, sinning against ourselves or sinning against our bodies. And he said, the best understanding 
of this phrase literally means to distort our personality or ourselves. It's like, have you ever wondered how someone becomes a pervert? No one is born that way, but over the course of time, they give themselves to something and they're sort of bent towards it. He says, in some sense, this is one of the things that happens with our human sexuality. It doesn't just touch our behavior, what we do. It deeply shapes who we are, our formation. And sex used outside of God's vision has enough combative force to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and almost anything else in its path. Mary Epistold again says this, first and contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and the weakest shoulders in society, even even as it has given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. Now, in a room like this today, look, I, I am aware, I'm a, I'm a functional pastor, I'm not like a speaker guy, I'm a functional pastor, I meet with people, I talk about discipleship, I listen to people's hearts, and as one of those pastors who sits and listens to people, I'm sure that in this room today there are people with such a, a wide variety of, of sexual backgrounds. And so I, I want to say here today, I am not here to produce shame or guilt or condemnation in any way at all. We are both victims and victimizers in many ways when it comes to our sexuality. That's not the question. The question is how do we, regardless of where we're coming from, bring our sexuality to the person of Jesus who was so kind to those who struggled with their sexuality and ask him, shape me and form me. I want you to be Lord of all of my life, every state of my life, including my aroused state. God, here I am. I offer this to you. So no shame... But to ask the question, how do we have a vision of sexual formation? Now, in responding to this, the church has had a very, very poor track record in dealing with the combustive fire of sexuality. One of the people who shaped a Christian understanding of sex and produced a a deep sense of fear of desire was Jerome. Jerome was one of those people who played a disproportionate role in history. At the time of his life, he was probably one of the greatest Christian scholars in the world in his mid-30s. He was probably the greatest figure in the history of Bible translation in church history, spent three decades creating a Latin version that would be the standard interpretation and account of the Scriptures for more than a thousand years. But he was plagued by sexual fantasies. He wrote, I often found myself surrounded by bands of dancing girls. He fasted to the point of starving himself in an attempt to control the temptations. He says, my face was pale with fasting, but though my limbs were cold as ice, my mind was burning with desire, and the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. So he took all of his energy and he pushed it towards studying Hebrew as a form of repressing his sexuality. Now his scholarship resulted in the Latin Vulgate translation, but it did little to change his attitudes towards sex. He assigned spiritual values to women, 100 points for virgins, 60 for widows, 30 for married women, ranking marriage just above fornication in his categorization. He said, I praise wedlock, I praise marriage, but it's because it produces more virgins. And he proceeded to give prison-like rules to mothers who raised these virgins. To husbands, he declared, anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. Now, this vision here created a strain of fear around sexuality and Christian formation in the church. 
Yancey says this, in the succeeding centuries, church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays, the day of Christ's arrest, on Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin, on Sundays, in honor of the departed saints, Wednesdays sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast period before Easter, Christmas, Pentecost, and also feast days and days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. One pope assigned a painter, Daniel the Trouserer, true, to clothe the nudes of the Sistine Chapel, another rule that all priests must be celibate. The list escalated until, as John Boswell, the gay theologian, pointed out, there were only 44 days a year left that a couples could have God-ordained sex in. And the basic vision of a fear of sexual desire is this, moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. In a fear of sexuality, moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. How's that working out for us? Yancey goes on, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not as its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept the traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. So if we were to be honest, this fear of desire looks more like this, moral standards plus willpower equals failure. Moral standards plus willpower equals failure. And many are left wondering what to do with this innate energy and passion inside of them, looking at what the church has traditionally sought and said, there's nothing, there's, that's not going to work. In response to this, there's another approach in our culture which basically says, don't fear your desires, follow your desires. Follow your desires. And this is under the vision, it's a cultural vision of sex positivity. This is a term that was coined by Wilhelm Reich. The sex positive movement does not in general make moral or ethical distinctions between heterosexual or homosexual sex or masturbation regarding these choices as just matters of personal preference. Sexologist Carol Queen says this, it's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium, that instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. And this, this framework basically says, just customize your life based on your preferences, follow your desires. And it views sexual appetites like any other appetite. You're thirsty, drink. You're hungry, eat a kale salad with organic chickpeas. You're aroused, have sex, and if no one's available, look at pornography and masturbate. It's just a physical desire. What's the big deal here? And in this vision, desire plus consent equals freedom. As long as you want it and as long as they're willing, you're going to find freedom and fulfillment in your sexuality. But really, knowing that we're now 50, 60 years into this experiment, are we really producing freedom and flourishing? In a New York Times article, What's Lust Got to Do With It? The author says this, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard, she tells me. We portray it as fun and we pretend it's fun, 
But people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. That's why Britain just appointed a loneliness minister. Britain has a loneliness minister? No, they do. The same bleak vision of sexuality is put into the minds of even young children. A video put out by Children's Television Workshop, widely used in sex education classes, defines sexual relations as simply something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. There's no mention of marriage or family or even love or commitment. No hints that that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification. And I want to put forth that this vision, desire plus consent, is actually reaping what it's sown. It equals disillusionment. People with more sexual choice and options, more dissatisfied and disillusioned with sexuality than almost ever. I once heard Bill Johnson say, by the way, this may be the only talk you hear today that has both Bill Johnson and Boswell, a gay theologian, in the same talk. But Bill Johnson said this, when you, and just follow the logic, I'll say this slowly, when you get rid of the creator, you remove the concept of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose... You get rid of the need for accountability. There's nothing to be accountable to. When you get rid of the need to answer for your choices or give an account for your life, you remove the fear of any sort of consequences. When you remove the fear of consequences, God is out of the equation. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so with no God and no wisdom, we are left with total sexual confusion. And that's where we are in our world today. So does Jesus have a vision that is not based on fear and it's not based on following desire? Well, I want to answer today, yes, I think he does. And this is the concept of sexual formation. Jesus' discipleship in sexual formation. As we know, the way of Jesus isn't just about behavior and it's not even about practices and it's not even about motives. It asks the question, not what am I doing, and not even why am I doing it. It asks a larger question, who am I becoming by why and what I'm doing? And this is a question that followers of Jesus are called to ask about their sexual practices. Who am I becoming by the way I'm using and giving myself to sexuality? This is not a fear of desire, and it's not following desire, but it's offering our desires to God and asking Him to form them. This is what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in almost every epistle where Paul is planning a uh, church in a Greco-Roman context, he has to give instructions on sexuality. This to the Thessalonians. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. See, every passage in the Bible about sexuality understands its power for formation and gives prohibitions to save us from deformation. The warnings in the Bible around sex follow the teaching of the goodness of sex. It is something to protect powerful and fragile, 
not something put in place to restrict our freedom. And so in this passage says, those who are following Jesus in the area of their sexuality have to learn control, not in passionate lust like the heathen. It's about learning to control and submitting to the Spirit in our sexuality. Self-control and spiritual fullness in our sexuality. Now that's, that's nice, and, nice and tidy there based on that passage, isn't it? How on earth do you actually live this out? Even if you have a vision where I want to submit my sexuality to Jesus, I I want to be formed by the Spirit, I want to learn to control myself in an honorable and a noble way, not in passionate lust like the heathen. How do I do it? Well, I think this is going to require that we actually understand the vision that we have for human sexuality. Human sexuality uh, in the way of Jesus is based on four pillars and Christians have to take these pillars into their understanding of the, praxis, the practices that they issue. The first one is this, is that human sexuality is designed to remind us of the true story that we actually long to. Sex is a signpost pointing us to something greater. In the beginning, we see in the Bible, they were naked and unashamed. In our culture, we are naked, but we still wrestle with shame. Even when we have our clothes off, we're still hiding our emotional vulnerability from others. Sex is a longing, the desire within us and our desire for union is pointing us to our desire for God. The very word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever and sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that's been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed the longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. So our sexuality, this longing for connection and reunion is birthed in God's vision. Sex as a sacrament points us to the divine. We all long to be pursued and wanted, to be naked and seen as beautiful and desirable, to be fully vulnerable and not rejected, and this is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A God who loves us, has chosen us, has rescued us, has seen us at our worst, has himself gotten naked and vulnerable on the cross on our behalf and given himself to us unconditionally. Sexual intimacy is a sacred pointer to something even greater, something truly out of this world. In one sense, we are never more godlike than in the act of sex. We make ourselves vulnerable, we risk, we give and receive in a simultaneous act. We feel a primordial delight entering into the other in communion. Quite literally, we make one flesh out of two different persons, experiencing for a brief time a unity like no other. Two independent beings open their inmost selves and experience not a loss, but a gain. In some way, a profound mystery, not even Paul dared explore. This most human act reveals something of the nature of reality, God's reality in his relations with creation and perhaps even within the Trinity itself. So this, even sexuality itself in the way of Jesus, is a reminder the whole thing is pointing to the true story that we are a part of. The second thing that this vision of sexuality begins to include is it's a holistic integration. Without sex as an entire experience with a person, heart, soul, mind, strength, pointed at uniting your life with someone, we reduce it to physicality or lust. And the inevitable result of that is what Jaquia Lowe calls a focus on technique. Sexuality that is not holistic and integrated gets relegated to technique and towards performance. It's a fundamental breakdown in intimacy. It increases pressure and it drives the porn industry. Having detached the physical act of sex from relationships, we can only work on perfecting the technique. And that's why there's so many sex studies, sex manuals, sex videos, and pornography. 
which do absolutely nothing to address our, address our internal loneliness and our deep source of pain. We see this in the film A Beautiful Mind. How many of you have seen A Beautiful Mind? It tells the story of John Nash, a renowned mathematician who struggles with uh, mental health issues. But in one scene, he doesn't have the people skills he needs like his friends to seduce a woman. So he says, listen, I don't have the words to say whatever it is that's necessary to get you into a bed. So can we just pretend I said those things and skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids? At which point she slaps him across the face. In almost all porn relationships, kids, when they lose their virginity, express disappointment that it wasn't as good as they saw in pornography. The focus is on technique and performance, not on love. Christianity teaches whole life Union. Sex is a reminder in our bodies of what we're doing with the rest of our lives, our dreams, our desires, our finances, our vision, our practices. So a vision of human sexuality points us to a story, but it also gives us a richer toolkit of of our entire lives being united together with the other. Sexuality is also tied with our transformation. Rollheis has written a tremendous amount of this, particularly in his book on desire, that when you don't follow your desires, you have to examine your desires. And that produces a chaste tension and introspection about why we want what we want. We know growing up, and it's our parents' primary job to try and help us understand this, that you, you spoil a child and deform his character by saying yes to any whim a child wants. Yet when we grow up and become adults and turn to our sexuality, we throw the wisdom of the universe out the window and say, no, I can be what I want by pursuing any desire that I have. But rarely does this produce life-giving love for others. Our sexuality produces selfishness rather than servanthood, and it begins to distort what we want and how we want it. So Christians believe that even the ability not to engage in sex at will is actually a gift that forms and disciplines our desires into servants rather than selfish lovers. It's tied to our transformation. And lastly, it's a witness to the world. It is a picture of Christ and the church. Christian sexuality should be a place of respect and humanity, not commodification and abuse. Sexuality practiced in the way of Jesus leads to healing and restoration, not exploitation. And it's a place of grace and meaning in a culture of lies and deceit. And we forget that one of the ways the early church won the Roman Empire, there was three of them. One was how they died. They died forgiving their enemies. Secondly, they were the term financially promiscuous, which is they were just so radically generous with their money, the world had no framework for it. And thirdly, they were faithful in their sexuality. In letter to Diognetus, it says this, Christians marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring, value for life. They have a common table, hospitality, but not a common bed, faithfulness in marriage. And these small practices in the way of Jesus subverted the Roman Empire over a period of 300 years. So we have to, as we look at the madness of our culture that says do whatever you want, The fear of the church that says, be totally afraid of sex. No, we need to reclaim a robust Christian vision of sexuality that points us to the true story that we want to be a part of. Is a holistic vision of sexuality in a shallow culture. Is actually a tool that that God uses in our transformation. It actually helps us bear witness in the madness of the world that we live in. Now, the problem of this is even if you have a vision of human sexuality, you will face temptations and struggles against it. 
So now I want to address some of those things. Now, again, as I address this, this talk is called Sexual Formation in the Way of Jesus. I want to talk about this process through the lens of formation, not even morality and behavior, but formation. Who am I becoming by participating in this practice? The first thing I want to talk about is pornography. Now, you know statistically that 90 plus percent of men, and now it's the, the rates amongst women are, are radically increasing. But almost everybody looks at porn. It's almost an assumption and a given. I'm constantly shocked riding the subway in New York what teenage boys are willing to view in public. Parents give no filters to their phones. Kids are running around with on-demand pornography supply in their pockets. My son lamented to me, Dad, I feel left out. I'm the only kid in my grade that has a porn filter on his phone. The more society loses touch with reality, especially in relationships, the more people do not know how it's supposed to be, how to react with other people, the more they turn to porn. People look at this fantasy and believe it should be their reality. They retreat further and further into their illusion because porn can never be real. It does not work in real life. Porn is a sickness. Now, Chris Hedges, who wrote an extraordinary book called Empire of Illusion, and I, I highly recommend that book, says this, the largest users of internet porn are between the ages of 12 and 17, and porn produces increasingly target adolescence. Porn targets the mid-teens to the mid-twenties and up. Now, we know this, and you've probably heard this, but it bears at least examination as we talk about sexual formation. Porn forms us by rewiring our brains. There's a lot of neurology and understanding about the, the neuroplasticity, the way that our brains over the course of time can change and adapt based on what we think and what we do. When researchers uh, compared brain scans of porn users with scans of non-users, -use they found that more, the more porn the person has used, the less his reward center activated when porn images were flashed on a screen. As a result, dopamine addiction requires that more hardcore material is required to produce the same sexual stimulation. <clears throat> the reduction and meddling with our dopamine parts of our brain, which oversees things such as planning, prioritizing, controlling impulses, results in the fact that we have reduced empathy and understanding for other people. It literally changes the way our brains work. It also affects our sexual tastes. Studies have found that porn use is correlated with having less, less sexual and relational satisfactions and an actual change in our desires. So when something sick or disturbing pops up in our sexuality and you click on it because the stuff you are used to no longer works, the brain stores the connection. And so biologists say neurons that fire together wire together. And as a result, a porn user builds up tolerance for sexual images. This means the pleasure of sexual discharge must be supplemented with the pleasure of an aggressive release, and sexual and aggressive images are increasingly mingled, hence the increase in sadomasochistic themes in hardcore pornography. It alters what we actually want in our sexual tastes. Porn impacts our relationships. Those viewing porn regularly reported higher levels of a willingness to commit rape, sexual callousness, and sexually aggressive behavior compared to the brain scans of those who do not use pornography. In a recent survey of 16 to 18-year-old Americans, nearly every participant reported learning how to have sex by watching porn, and many of the young women said they felt pressured to play out the scripts that their male partners had learned from pornography. They felt badgered into having sex in uncomfortable positions, faking sexual responses, and consenting to unpleasant and painful acts in order to please the guys they were sleeping with. And porn's distorting our culture. 
In a meeting of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, 62% the internet had been, a, had been a significant factor in all divorces that they handled that year. 56% involved one person having an obsessive interest in internet porn. It feeds misogyny, intersectionality of victims, and human trafficking. Psychologists describe an addicted person as those who spend at least 11 or 12 hours a week searching or watching pornographic material. And based on my pastoral experience, there's a lot of people who fall into the category of porn addicts. Pope John Paul says this, there's no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. So again, the question for followers of Jesus, who am I becoming emotionally, relationally, even physically what's happening to my brain, my dopamine, my addiction and my relationships? And is this making me more like Christ or less? Now, the second thing I'm going to talk about is masturbation. You can't talk about sexual formation without talking about masturbation. The problem with masturbation is not in the Bible. I mean, people did do it in the Bible, but it's not, it's not recorded in the Scriptures themselves. So it's tough to find a passage from one of the prophets or from one of the epistles or for Christ on masturbation. But some good news for you today. C.S. Lewis addressed it, and so we're going to go with our boy Charles. <laughs> This concept falls under a concept that, or masturbation falls under a concept that Augustine has, where he talks about sin as love turned in on itself. And the reformers have this, this word they used, incurvatus, which means the collapsing of, collapsing of desire inward. Everything becomes about me. Augustine, the early church thinker, had an interesting definition for sin. He called it love turned in on itself. We were made to be people who love God, who love other people, but we turn that love in on ourselves, and what that produces is ruin. Now, I'm about to read you a reasonably extensive passage from one of C.S. Lewis's book, and C.S. Lewis is writing to a young American, okay? This is his fatherly advice, so I want you to imagine perhaps if this is helpful. Uh, you know C.S. Lewis really well. You, reg you regularly drink tea and beer together. And you say, hey, look, there's, look, I, Chronicles of Narnia, that was quite strong, and I appreciated your take on hell, it touched my imagination. But look, honestly, I've got this one other question. Look, I, I don't want to say this too loudly. What do you think of masturbation? And so here's C.S. Lewis. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another. And finally, in children and even grandchildren. And then it turns it back, sending the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments and can be endowed with erotic and uh, psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among these shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification is ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. C.S. Lewis takes a sip of beer, continues. <laughs> it is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. 
The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is A, to help us to understand other people, and B, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art. But it also has a bad use to provide for us in shadowy form, a substitute for virtues, successes, distinctions, etc., which ought to be sought outside in the real world. E.g., picturing all I'll do if I were rich instead of earning and saving. Masturbation involves this abuse of imagination in erotic matters, which I think is bad in itself, and thereby encourages a similar abuse of it in all spheres. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we were all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. Again, sexual formation is not about repressing or releasing desire, but redirecting them in a godly manner. We're not just asking what we're doing, but who we're becoming. Three concepts in that extended quote. The harem within. He's obviously a man, so he's addressing this from a male perspective. Abusing the imagination and loving the prison. Love turned in on itself. So with all of that understanding, Ephesians 5, 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these just aren't proper for God's holy people. This exposure to pornography and obsession with masturbation is, is, is literally causing crises in population growth around the world. In fact, there's a term in Japan called Sekusi Shinai Shokugan, or celibacy syndrome, where the population is declining because men literally have lost the ability to interact with women. It is a named national crisis. The harem within, abused imaginations, loving the prison. What do we do then? That's porn, that's masturbation. What do we do then in sexual formation regarding dating? Now, dating is a challenging topic. Dating is definitely not in the Bible. Up until the 18th or 19th centuries, most marriages were arranged but there was also a process called courtship. After arranged marriages, they moved into courtship. And ultimately, the term dating appeared somewhere in print for the first time around the time 1914. But this was a pivotal shift. In courtship, the man came into the presence of the whole family and was evaluated based on his worth, based on his character, based on his ability to provide for a woman. But dating changed that where relationships were separated from the larger family and now the young couple went out away from both families and the relationship was formed around fun and entertainment and getting to know each other in unrealistic situations. As dating spread throughout society, it not only individualized the whole process, but it also changed the focus away from friendship and character assessment to money being seen, and fun. Dating then led, before apps were in the world, to the nature of live game and hookup culture, and when that was taken online, we have the rise of dating apps. Now, I'm a 42-year-old man. I've never swiped in any direction. I've never used a dating app. I've been married forever. So I talked to a, a ton of my friends uh, about dating apps, and one of them said this, let me just cut to the chase. Dating apps are like Amazon Prime to deliver you hot people. <laughs> this forced me 
into further research to see if this was an exaggeration or one person's experience. And I came across this article in Vanity Fair called Tinder and Hookup Culture Promotion. I quote, There have been two major traditions, transitions in heterosexual mating in the last four million years. He says, the first was around 10,000 to 15,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution where we became less migratory and more settled, leading to the establishment of marriage as a cultural contract. And the second major transaction, or transition is the rise of the internet. Does it feel overwhelming and confusing? Yes, it's only happened one other time in the last four million years. <laughs> one woman says this, guys view everything as a competition. He, he, he elaborates with his deep, reassuring voice. Who slept with the best, hottest girls? With these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them, so you could rack up 100 girls you've slept with in a year. There's a concept of what's called Tinderellas. It's a girl that you sleep with before midnight, but not after midnight. And there's the Tinder King, a guy who can get someone to sleep with him based on their text game, possibly the mastery of emojis only. Some quotes. I sort of play that I want to be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over, but then they start wanting me to care and I just don't. It's like ordering seamless, but you're ordering a person. It's rare for a woman of our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of an option. They start with, send me nudes, says Reese, or they say something like, I'm looking for something quick within the next 10 or 20 minutes. Are you available? Okay, you're a mile away. Tell me your location. It's straight efficiency. That one is a quote from Manhattan. If he texts you before midnight, he actually likes you as a person. If it's after midnight, it's just for your body. I hooked up with three girls thanks to the internet off of Tinder in the course of four nights and I spent a total of $80 on all three girls. Nick, with his lumber sexual beard and hipster clothes, as if plucked from the wardrobe closet of girls, is physically speaking a modern male ideal. That he fulfills none of the requirements identified by evolutionary psychologists as what women supposedly look for in mates. He's neither rich nor tall, he also lives with his mum doesn't seem to have any effect on his ability to get rampantly laid. In his iPhone, he's a list of more than 40 girls he has had relations with, rated by a one to five star rating. It empowers them, he jokes. It's a mix of how good they are in bed and how attractive they are. One woman, I had sex with a guy and he ignored me as I got dressed and I saw he was back on Tinder. A few young women admitted to me that they use dating apps as a way to get free meals. I call it Tinder food stamps. If I can have you, some of you are deleting Tinder right now for your phones. If I can just have your attention right now. Let's, <laughs> I'll back up here, please. The question we need to ask again is this. Not is it sinful or can I? The question is, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Who am I becoming by what I'm doing? And it is the breathtakingly spirit-filled mature follower of Jesus Christ who can enter into a dating app designed to manipulate your neural wiring your dopamine, your reward centers, and not have it affect you or change you in any way at all. And it's changed why we date. Now, instead of Christians saying, I want to find a godly person through whom I can better fulfill the kingdom of God, we date when we're lonely. I'm just lonely, so I want someone. Sexual desire, I'm horny, I'm aroused, I want someone. Or pride, I want to show people the quality of the person I can attract to myself. 
Now, here's what I think has happened with the rise of dating culture and formation. It's literally changed the way in which we approach relationships in real life. Again, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on the four loves where he articulated these four kinds of loves in human society. First, there's eros, erotic love. We're quite familiar with that. Then there's storge love, sort of like nostalgic excitement and wonder. Then you have philia, which is about friendship and brotherly love, and agape, which is the other-centered sacrificial care. Dating app culture has changed the order of our loves to eros number one, are they hot? Number two, can I have an exciting, wondrous time with them? Number three, after I've slept with them and had a bunch of fun, do I want to build a friendship? And then lastly, if we're friends, maybe we should spend our lives together. Let's consider marriage. But the way of Jesus actually reverses the disorder of the loves of our culture and puts it like this. Number one, when I view the people I want to date, I ask, am I willing to offer them sacrificial care in the way of Jesus? Number two, are we friends who connect well and resonate in all areas of life? Number three, can we build a life of genuine united vision and excitement about our future? And lastly, when those things are in place, I will commit to you. I will care for you. I will build a vision with you. Yes, I want uh, a level of attraction towards you, then you consummate the marriage in sexuality. When you love like the world, it leads to selfishness and commodification. When you love like Jesus, it creates order and flourishing for everybody involved in the relationships. Now, I pause for a sec to just ask the question, honestly, take a moment. When you think about dating someone, what's your grid? Is it the way of the world or the way of Jesus? So are you saying it's wrong to use dating apps? Wrong question. Who are you becoming by using apps? Some people at this point then say, look, honestly, I've seen so much failure around sexuality and I've seen so many Christians get divorced. Maybe we should just do a test drive. What if we just move in together and live together in order to figure out if we're actually compatible? One author who wrote a magnificent book called Divine Sex calls these relationships, cohabitation before marriage, subprime relationships, like the subprime mortgage crisis. He says, if intimate relationships like this were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They are high-risk projects with little or no collateral security. Unfortunately, just like subprime mortgages, these relationships are actually designed to fail. Only one in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage. Cohabiting significantly increases the likelihood of divorce. Women who cohabit multiple times before marrying divorce more than twice as frequently as those who only live with their future husband. Serial monogamy, that is a string of consecutive sexual relationships, actually hinders eventual marital satisfaction, while sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for an increased likelihood of infidelity within marriage. That to me seems so obvious because if you have a Christian vision of sexual formation and you use the season of your life where you don't follow your appetites but you redirect them towards Jesus, you literally in your moments of need will have trained yourself for covenantal faithfulness. But if you just give in to your desires at will, then all of a sudden you find yourself having to have sex with one person for the rest of your life. You literally haven't trained your character, your practices, or your body to say no to desire outside of God's will. And so trying to turn the tap off because you say a vow becomes practically very, very hard. Now I'm bringing Tim Keller into it. He says this, 
When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily, not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourselves to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it is even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, the person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all of my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say my love for you has not reached the marriage level. And so I want you to see that based on the craziness of our culture, based on a vision of what sexual formation is in the way of Jesus, based on our need to overcome these temptations that deform us, that a Christian vision of sexual formation includes the following elements. Number one, a vision of what sex is actually for. Number two, the power of the Holy Spirit within us to live this out, not human willpower. Number three, practices that actually shape us into the kinds of people that tell us towards which all human sexuality is headed and that this will result not in our deformation but in our restoration, our restoration. This, in our sexually broken culture, is what followers of Jesus ache for. I reorder my desires, I rely on the Spirit I adjust my practices so I live in the reality of sexual flourishing the way God has designed it. You cannot rely only on external motivation. We need new hearts, new habits, new community, but a new heart that wants to please God in every area of our lives. Now, to build a community around this vision then requires two things, individual formation and communal foundation. On an individual level, we have to realize that in a society like ours, every choice against promiscuity will feel like, in some sense, suffering. It will not feel like an inconvenience. It will feel like suffering. You'll get online and you'll look at all of your friends and everything will seem awesome and you will feel lonely. People will be involved in all sorts of relationships and sexual behaviors that just don't seem like that big a deal. But our formation in the way of Jesus is fundamental above every other kind of pleasure in society. And then individually, as we bring our commitment to the way of Jesus into community, it begins to change the dynamics of how people do relationships inside the body of Christ. Again, Paul to the Thessalonians, and in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told and warned you about before. So I've seen something happening as a pastor a lot, and it happens particularly with men, not stereotyping, but in my limited experience, and it's the concept of committing sexual fraud. (laughs) Sexual fraud is to promise with your body that which you will not commit with with the rest of your life. And the goal of community formation is that we don't, it says here, defraud or take advantage of a brother or sister in this way. So individuals practicing the way of Jesus in a community formed around Jesus' ethic of sexuality provides an alternative culture to the one of the world. But not only this, and this is where I think we fall so short, we fail to see that in all of life, that obedience actually leads to blessing and joy. And so when you live in God's world, in God's way, it leads to God's rewards. 
And I think it happens primarily not with perfect marriages or ecstatic sexual experiences after marriage. It changes the level of happiness in our spirits where we're no longer dependent on those things. The church should be a community both of discipline, yes, in how we shape our lives, but also delight in enjoying Jesus. Enjoying Jesus. This is the call of the Christian heart. And the more satisfied we are in Christ, the more satisfied we are inside the body of Jesus, pursuing friendship and shared vocation and doing life together and sharing our tables and caring and loving for one another. Not just discipline, but delight springs up amongst the people of God. Jonathan Grant says this, this is actually staggering. Neurobiologists have shown that while most brain development stops somewhere in childhood, the brain's joy center, you have a joy center in your head, located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. As Dr. James Friesen and his colleagues explained, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, and it is the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food and sexual impulses, terror and rage. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the deficit. And so the Christian church is one that is feasting. And all the practices you've been talking about as a church, particularly Sabbath and delight and celebration, these sorts of practices strengthen our joy center that literally because we're filled with joy and following the way of Jesus, give us sufficient strength to resist the temptation of the world. Now, at this point, some of you are sitting here and you're like, look, this is all not bad. It's pretty good. <laughs> but honestly, you don't know what I've done. Like if my sexual deeds were put on a screen, you wouldn't let me in this community. Like I've just done stuff you don't understand. I mean, there were some bad relationships in there. There's some bad seasons of loneliness in there. There was just some stuff that's happened. And it's just this, I just, I just struggle to believe in my heart that there's a future for me in holiness and sexual formation in the way of Jesus. I just have too much guilt, too many images in my head, too much drama, too much temptation. And I want you to know that the Bible, when they were writing the Gospels to people, you know who was getting converted in these pagan cities? People who regularly had sex with prostitutes as a form of worship. Not morally upright people from the 1950s in American suburbs. Genuine sinners with sexual pasts. And God's word says you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. God can handle your sexual failure when you bring it into the light. And he can bring tremendous restoration and freedom. And isn't this what we see in Jesus' life? Isn't this what we see in Jesus' life? Look at the woman in the well, woman caught at the well. What does Jesus say to her? He doesn't condemn her behavior, though he's aware of it. He literally says to her, I have living water. Do you want it? To the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, I will not condemn you. And I want you to see this image. Jesus drives a wedge. He literally puts himself 
between the guilty and the accuser to create space for grace. And this is what Jesus will do in your sexuality. If you invite him in, he won't come in and accuse. He will drive himself between your past and failure and accusation and create an environment for restoration in your life if you invite him in. I read about this practice. It's a Japanese practice. And I thought it was just such a beautiful image of what God does regarding our sexuality, formation, and healing. It's a Japanese practice of kintsugi. And there should be a picture here. With the general Western consensus on a broken object, you drop a plate. What do you do? You pick it up, you sweep up the small pieces, and you throw it away. But practitioners and admirers of kintsugi believe that the never-ending consumerism is not a spiritually rewarding experience. The kintsugi method conveys a philosophy not of replacement, but of awe, reverence, and restoration. The gold-filled cracks of a once-broken item are a testament to its history. One artist points out, the importance of kintsugi is not the physical appearance, it is the beauty and importance that stays in the one who beholds the dish. Look at these beautiful images. And this is what Jesus can do for you. You may feel that you're so broken. You may feel like there's just no way if I start dating seriously that, and people find out where I've been that there's any hope. Jesus can make absolute beauty out of broken things. And in a staggering way, in a very real way, the places that feel most broken can be the places of the strongest beauty and the strongest grace. You may know this, you may not know this, but sitting around you are kintsugi believers. They're sitting all around you. These are people whose lives have been changed by Jesus' grace. They're people who, regardless of what they've been through, they've been changed, they've been made new. And even though they have a past, they, they, they bring it all. And something beautiful has emerged because of the grace of God. So you don't have to fear your desires and you don't have to be a slave to following your desires. You can offer your sexuality to God and He will form your desires in such a way that joy and restoration and beauty become your actual story. Your actual story. Jean Venet says this, We all have to choose between two ways of being crazy. The foolishness of the gospel and the nonsense of the values of our world. And as followers of Jesus, I want to submit before you today that if you bring your sexuality to Jesus and you allow him to form your desires, that beauty can come out of brokenness, hope can come out of tremendous harm, and that grace will be a testimony that God will build your life on.